I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, good morning, everybody. Today, of course, is Ta'anit Esther, or Tainus Esther, as they say in Ashkenazis, which is the fast of Esther. And this fast day, for those of you who are fasting, it is considered a more minor fast, which means that the rabbis are generally more lenient on people who are not up to it or not feeling well, etc. Um, but many people do fast. So they can eat a lot tomorrow and not feel guilty. No, not really. <laughs> but um, of course, uh, this class should be a zechus for all of our brothers and sisters that are in the Ukraine. And of course, for the world at large, that we should see peace and we should see the geula, which is uh, very much a part of the Purim story. The geula, the redemption that happened back then, should be repeated. Um, for the Jewish people and for, of course, the world at large. And also a zechus for Rivka Gitto Basihudis, Rafua Shalema, and to all of those who need a Rafua Shalema. So today is the fast of Esther, as we said. And the question is, why is it called by this name? If you look into the Megillah, what you see is that this was not the day that Esther fasted. Okay? If you look into the Megillah, the fast of Esther happened uh, in the month of Nisan. And it was actually a three-day fast. Just got my source. And it was a fast that Esther called when, of course, you all know the story. And Mordechai tells her she must go into the king and she must you know, let the king know what's going on. Of course, Esther is afraid. She says anybody who goes to the king that isn't called is, you know, liable to get the death sentence, including his own wife. And Mordechai says to her, well, you know, if you don't go, your house, your name, your house, the generations after you will all perish. And this is your moment and you have to do this. But before Esther will do this, she says to the Jews, go, she says to Mordechai, sorry, go assemble all the Jews to be found in Shushan and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I with my maids will fast also. And then I will go to the king, though it's unlawful. And if I perish, I perish. Mordechai then left and did exactly as Esther had commanded him. So this is the fast of Esther. This is the three-day fast. Now, this fast, again, for people who don't realize, was a fast that took place in Nisan, and it actually coincided with the first day of Pesach. So the Jews of that year at that time did not celebrate a Pesach Seder that year. Everybody was fasting. But here we are. It's the 13th day of Adar, and we call this day the fast of Esther. So what's the connection? What happened on the 13th day of Adar? <clears throat> oh, I just wanted to say one, one more idea that <clears throat> the fast that Esther fasted and asked the Jews to fast with her, not only were in preparation for her to go to the king, but she recognized, I just want to read this to you. Second. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, you know what? I won't read it. I'll just tell you. She understood that she was not going to be able to save the Jewish people by fasting, that it was only if the Jewish people fasted together with her that they would be aroused to examine their own deeds and bring about their own salvation, that it was not going to be possible for her to do it. So the Jewish people themselves had to get involved in the fasting and in her being successful. Also very important to understand that this fasting that they were doing for the three days 
was a rectification, was a, a tikkun, a repair of the fact that they had gone to this feast of Achashverosh, which we spoke about in the last class, the 180-day party where everything was kosher, but of course the party was celebrating the demise of the Jewish people and the Jews went and they drank and they feasted. And so these, this fast that Esther calls seemingly for her success was really also to arouse the Jewish people to recognize that they needed to have a part by fasting with her in their own salvation and in recognizing the sins that they have co had committed at the beginning of the Megillah by going to this party. So, <clears throat> but again, what happened on Adar 13 that, you know, we call this the fast of Esther. So Adar 13, which is today, the 13th of Adar, is the day that the Jewish people were allowed to rise up against their enemies and fight back. <clears throat> Just an interesting note for those of you who have read the Megillah, but maybe didn't notice this. When Esther asks Ahasuerus to save the Jews, one of the laws of that day is that a king could never revoke a law that he'd already made. And since he'd already given Haman permission to destroy the Jews, he couldn't do anything about that. But what he could do was add to the law. So he added to the law that the Jews are allowed to fight back. Okay, that was something that we weren't going to be able to do. Another thing that's important to understand is that this decree of the enemies rising up against the Jews on the 13th of Adar was a decree that was made 11 months earlier. Okay, at the very beginning of the Megillah, when Ahasuerus and Haman make this deal, and, and Ahasuerus agrees to Haman's request to destroy, annihilate, exterminate every man, woman, and child of the Jewish people, this decree goes out and is you know, promulgated, and everybody receives the flyer 11 months before it's actually going to happen. So there's two reasons given for why it's so far ahead. One is that Haman wanted to increase the agony that the Jewish people were going to feel with this impending doom being 11 months you know, in the future. But not just Hamelech, so to speak, so, sorry, Melech, Ahasuerus, and Haman were giving, you know, making the Jews agonizing. Hashem himself, Hamelech, Hamelech, right? Because every time we see the word Hamelech in the Megillah, we're referring to the king of all kings. He was giving the Jewish people the 11 months to give them the opportunity to do teshuva, to recognize where they had gone wrong, that they needed to return to Hashem. And these 11 months, you know, because it could have been that the decree went out and that, you know, a few days later, the Jews were going to be slaughtered. But we literally had 11 months to think about it. Again, one was by Haman to increase our agony. The second was Hashem, Hamelech, to give us time to get our act together and come back to Hashem in sincere teshuva. So again, back to the idea of the 13th of Adar being the fast day. What happened on the 13th of Adar? This was the day that the Jewish people were allowed to organize themselves and so on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, when the king's command and edict were about to be enforced on that very day that the enemies of the Jews expected to gain the upper hand over them, and it was turned about. Nahafochu, the Jews gained the upper hand over their adversaries. In other words, we were able to fight back. No one stood in their way, for fear of them had fallen upon all the peoples. Okay, so this is the fast that we're celebrating today. This is the day that the Jewish people fought back against their enemies. So what do we know about, about going to war and fighting in terms of the Jewish tradition? So the Rambam says, even though it doesn't say it clearly in the text, that the Jewish people must have fasted on this, this day because Jews would always fast on the day that they were fighting. 
right? On the day that you would expect you want to be in your best physical shape, Jews would always fast. And again, the reason for the fast, and we're going to talk more about this, is because we always understand they fight with their horses, they fight with their chariots, but we understand that it's in the name of Hashem that we call out when we go to war, because we understand that our victory will only come through Hashem saving us, right? There was one source on the source sheet last week that I forgot to mention, or maybe I did mention it, but the idea was that whenever, uh, whenever Moshe's arms were held up, the Jews would begin winning against their war with Amalek. And whenever his arms came down, they would begin losing. And this whole idea was a metaphor, really, for the fact that whenever the Jewish people look up, meaning they look to Hashem for their salvation, they understand that their salvation has to come from a higher place. It's not through our physical strength that the Jewish people have survived Jewish history. It's not through our might. It's not through our armies. We're a small people. We're a people who had no country. We're a people who were the target of the greatest empires throughout history, the strongest and the biggest armies, the most mighty empires. So we know that we are a supernatural people, a people above the stars, and a people who, if we do not depend on Hashem for our salvation, we're lost. And so the Jews fast on the day that they're going to war, to pivot, if you like, to a more spiritual type of um, perspective, to make themselves ready in a spiritual way, because they know that it's that that's going to lead to their victory physically, that Hashem is going to fight their wars. That was always a big, you know, issue, um, you know, through all the wars that modern day Israel has fought, that unfortunately for Jews who do not have a religious outlook, it was very much the wars were fought with an attitude of kochi v'otzim yadi. We beat all those Arabs that surround us because we're, we're smarter, we're faster, we're more strategically able to win. And of course, this is an, an anathema. This is antithetical to the Jewish belief that forget it, got nothing to do with your strategies, got nothing to do with how smart you are, Jewish people. You know, you had millions and millions of enemies surrounding you with more tanks, with more arms, with whatever, and you won because Hashem wanted you to win, because Hashem made you win. This is the proper Jewish perspective. Of course, we have to get out there and put on our armor, but don't think for a minute that you win wars against your enemies without Hashem making it happen. Okay, and this is not true just in our wars, but it's true in our everyday lives as well, which we're going to talk about. So this was the day that we were able to fight back. And they decided, the rabbis decided that this day is still going to be called the fast of Esther. Because all the fast days that happen through the Megillah are all going to be called under her name, even though this was not the day that Esther was fasting. Again, that was a three-day fast that happened in Nisan. Okay. <clears throat> but the question is, and this is... Um, what I want to speak about today, and it's based on a class by Dina Schoonmaker, the wonderful Dina Schoonmaker. The question is, you know, what is the message of this fast day? What is the message of Tinus Esther? Because when you think about these two fasts that we just discussed, they're both counterintuitive and counterproductive. Here, Esther is going in front of the king, and the likelihood of her you know, being turned away and never being heard from again is very, very high. She keeps telling Mordecai, why don't we wait? You know, I'm going to be called to the king in another few days. Let's not risk it. Let me wait until he calls me and then I'll ask him and then I'll beg to him and at least he'll be in a good mood because he's calling me. 
Why should I risk it and go early? And of course, Mordecai says, this is the moment you have to go now. So not only is she going to the king in a moment where she's really risking her life, but to fast for three days before she goes to the king, let's face it, lady, how, ladies, how are you going to look three days? And this was a fast that was night and day. It wasn't a fast that you broke at the end of every day, like Ramadan, okay, or other fasts. I mean, don't you want to look your best? You married her because she was the most beautiful woman in all of the 127 provinces. So here she is saying, let's all fast for three days and three nights. Probably didn't put on any makeup either because I know she didn't have any makeup on when she was chosen from the beauty contest. She didn't want to be chosen, okay? But she says, I'm fasting, let's do this for three days. So this is very counterintuitive to do this before you're going to the king, okay? The second question goes along with this. Isn't it counterintuitive, like we said? to fast on the day that you're going to war? Doesn't that sound counterproductive? I mean, even if it is in Hashem's hands, we're supposed to make hishtadlis. Well, doesn't it make more sense to eat your Wheaties on that day? You know, make your efforts, even though you know that it's up to Hashem whether or not you win. So what is the, um, what are we learning here? So. The message of both of the fasts is that there was a plan and that you want the kickoff of any plan to be something spiritual. You want to put God on your side before you take action because we have to be reminded that plans in the physical world need Hashem's help and support. As it says in Psalm 127, If Hashem will not build a house, then in vain have its builders toiled upon it. Okay? So the message is that all plans need a spiritual beginning, right? There are many times when we say the words harenim muhan umazuman, even before people bench at a table, harenim muhan umazuman means that I am readying myself, I am preparing myself. But people can say this, you know, before they give a speech, Hashem, please help me. Please help me choose the right words. Please help my words enter the hearts of those who are listening to me. Please let me have hain in their eyes so that your message through me is received and, and gives my people chizuk, inspiration the desire to be closer to you. But in anything that we do, the idea here is that to bring Hashem into the plan is a very important part of being God conscious, God aware, and aligning ourselves in the right way. So, you know, we don't think of praying for things like small things, like when we're going out to shop at Yorkdale, right? And we need to find that perfect black turtleneck or whatever it is that we need for this upcoming simcha. But the truth is, is if we would plug that in, you know, Hashem, I'm going to shop today. I only have an hour. This has got to be quick. Get me to the store that I need to get to. Help me to find that article of clothing that's not too short, that the sleeves aren't too short, that the hemline isn't too short. Not so simple, not so easy, right? Even though if you're dressing sneas, you've already knocked off a lot of uh, choices, right? But, you know, to find that article of clothing is not easy. So again, the idea is, do we do that? Do we pray? I used to joke, I remember once I went to a wig sale in Brooklyn. And it was at a very high-end wig lady on Avenue M. And I think it opened at 7 a.m. in the morning, okay? And everybody was crowding into, there was a whole line around the block. People were crowding into the front entrance, waiting their turn. And everybody's gabbing and talking. And of course, they're talking about shaitals and if there's going to be any left and if they're all going to be duds and blah, blah, blah. And I said, listen, ladies, I think the only thing we should all be doing right now is going through the book of Tehillim. Okay, 
because if you don't want to get it done and you don't, you know, you want to get a beautiful shaito and you got this incredible shaito that's, you know, usually I don't know how much money and you're getting it for much less. I think our greatest chance of being successful here is not trying to figure this out logically or, you know, worrying about it. Just let's start saying to Hillam. So, of course, that was a little bit tongue in cheek, but, you know, I, I thought it, you know, really made the most sense. How, uh, um, as opposed to the, you know, um, relying on the luck of the draw, you know, where your luck level was that day. <clears throat> so the idea is, you know, even before you renovate your house, something very material, something very physical to put in a prayer that you get the right people to do it, that the cost that they told you at the beginning is going to be the same cost at the end, right? That, you know, they do a good job. You know, you know how you know how fix-it men always come into your house and they look at something that the fix-it guy before did and says, "What an idiot! He doesn't know what he's doing." Right? They come and they say, "There, he was supposed to put three nails in here. He only put one nail. What a lazy bum!" Right? And they always have they're always bettering each other and saying, "You know, he doesn't know what he was doing. He put your bathtub in backwards. What a jerk!" Right? Whatever it is. But the point is, is that you know we need a lot of hatslacha to get the right person who really wants to do the job well, who doesn't rip you off. And again, why not invoke God's name, God's help in this seemingly very material, you know, thing? Because we need success in everything we do by asking Hashem to help us to be successful. Okay. So even before we do a mitzvah, we should ask Hashem to help us succeed. You know, I'm giving tzedakah. Let this tzedakah go to the right place. Let this tzedakah help the people that really need help. So we need a spiritual kickoff for a, for a physical plan. Nina Skume suggests that even before you go on a diet, you know, you could do a special mitzvah beforehand to get Hashem on board because then you're more likely to be successful. So the question is, where do I do this naturally? And where do I not include God? So it's natural for us to ask God to help us when we're sick, God forbid, or when somebody we love is sick. It's natural for us to plead to God to help us get our children married right, for shaduchim for our children, for parnasa. But where are the areas where we don't ask God, right? I know I always give the examples. Do you ask for the parking spot? You know, when you're in a rush and you're at Yorkdale, you got to get to the bay, you got to get in and out, right? You've got somewhere else to go. Do you ask that you should, you know, get the quickest line at winners, you know, and get in and out of there? because you got to get home. But these are the kind of ways that we can be bringing Hashem into our every moment of every day. There's nothing too small to ask Hashem for. If anything, when we think that Hashem is only around for the big things in our life, we're limiting Hashem. We're saying, Hashem, you're busy. You can do all the big stuff. You can make people well. You can fight wars, right? Maybe you can even help me with my parnasa. But I'm not going to bother you with a parking spot. I mean, you've got bigger things to do than that. We're limiting Hashem when we don't understand that, no, in our story last week, that he's involved with the leaf that falls from the tree and the branch that shakes so the leaf will fall and the wind that blows so the branch will shake and the malach that tells the wind to blow. There's a whole chain reaction that happens when we invoke God's name and he wants to get us that spot in front of the bay and he wants to get us all the green lights. And he wants to get us the fastest cashier at winners. But we have to ask. We have to ask. If we don't ask, we don't get. If we don't unlock the key and open the door, then we can't allow the shefa, the blessing, the bounty, the connection, the relationship to happen. So that's what it's all about. And we shouldn't think that anything we ask for is too small and chas v'shalom too large, right? 
because we should know that the large things for sure Hashem can do. Again, what I'm saying is it's the little things that we limit God and say, ah, oh, he's not great enough or he, whatever. It's not that we're saying he's not great enough, but who gadol means that he's even interested in the most minutest, seemingly unimportant parts of our life, but they're important to us. And if you want to see Hashem more in your life, you have to ask him for everything, even the small things in your day. Not just the guy who's standing at the hotel, who's not sure if there's a God or not. And he says, Hashem, give me a sign. And the next second, somebody's tapping him on the shoulder saying, hi, are you Jewish? Would you like to spend a day in yeshiva? <gasps> you know? Whoa. Okay. Now he's got a story for the rest of his life, right? But even the small things, even the small things. <clears throat> So Avraham ben uh, Harambam, the son of the Rambam, says, when a religious person is going to put effort into something, he must remember to rely on Hashem. Look to Hashem to help you achieve the results you hope to achieve. Right? In the prayer every day in Shemona Esri, we say, Rifa'enu Hashem v'nei Heal us, Hashem, and we will be healed. Well, why do we have to put Hashem's name there? We're davening Shemona Esrei. Who else are we talking to? Right? And we're saying, heal us and we will be healed. But the extra emphasis of putting the name Hashem again there is remember, don't rely on the doctors. Don't rely on the medicine. These are all tools in Hashem's hands. But it's you, Hashem, who's the one who heals us. Okay? We might daven naturally when the plane has turbulence. I do. <laughs> I don't know. When I'm on a plane and it starts being turbulent, all of a sudden I am, I've got lots of uh, kavana, you know, lots of intention. Oh, please, Hashem, please let us get to where we need to go, right? When I'm saying Elenu on a plane, I've said this before, and I'm saying, God, you are under me and above me. There's a whole new meaning to that than when I'm saying it on the ground, right? And I, I, and I realize, wow, you know what? When I'm on the ground, I should realize that really it's like I'm in the air because, you know, I think I'm standing on firm ground. But the truth is, is if Hashem isn't supporting me and holding me up and keeping me going, who says, even on the ground, I can't slip on some ice, right? Or God forbid, fall down the stairs. Okay, in a plane, you really feel it. Like, you know, Hashem, I hope you're under me because if this plane goes down, whoa, <laughs> that's the end, you know? So, you know, we dove in naturally when we're in a dangerous situation. We intuitively turn to God. But what about the regular mundane situations like doing some interior decorating in our house, right? with God, you know, we should, we should be able to do that if we need it. So Tainus Esther teaches us, the fast of Esther, the Gemara says, if a person is going to extract blood, he should first say, Hashem, please make this medical procedure work. There's a special prayer that you can say before taking medicine. Hashem, please make this medicine work. It says in the Gemara, if you're going to go measure your field, before you go, you should ask Hashem to make your field fruitful, okay? And the idea is, is that the spiritual kickoff reminds me that I need Hashem's help all along the way. We fast because they fasted in the Megillah. This is true. We fast like just on every fast day to arouse our spiritual side, to lessen our more physical, animal self, to be able to be more receptive and to make ourselves more vulnerable, to put ourselves in a situation like the one in a sense that they were in, which of course we could not imagine, but like the one they were in during the Gilas Esther, or you know, if we have to use turbulence on a plane, you know, where we really recognize that Hashem is the only one who could save us and that we are um, 
we are um, in a place where we want to do teshuva, right? If you're on a plane and you think this might be your last trip, you're going to be doing a lot of teshuva in a very quick way. You know, Hashem, I want to come back to you. You're the, I see you're the only one who can save me. You'll do a quick review of your life, of what you feel you've done wrong. And this is what everybody does in those last moments, naturally. So the fast day is there to get us there, help us to get there, right? To come that much closer, a little bit closer, to examine our deeds, to say, how can I do better? How can I come back to you? So in the Megillah, they did something that was counterproductive to their plans. We're not going to necessarily do that, right? We're not going to do something that's counterproductive because that's really a high level. But what it's teaching us is that when we put something spiritual together or do something spiritual before we enter into some kind of physical need or want, this is a very good thing to do. Okay, so that's basically, one other thing I wanted to tell you is that one of the customs for today is to, to say the Psalm, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by King David, but it was written for Esther, for Esther Hamalka in praise of her. And I'll just read you the very beginning of it. Lamanatseh al Ayelet Hashachar to the chief musician upon Ayelet Hashachar. Ayelet Hashachar means the morning star. Okay. Mizmor Ladavit, a psalm of David. My God, my God, I'll read it in English. Why have you forsaken me? You can imagine how Esther felt, knowing that she was possibly going to die. So far from my deliverance, from the words of my cry, my God, I call out by day, but you do not answer, and at night, and there is no relief for me, and you, Holy One, are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you saved them. To you, they cried out and were delivered. In you, they trusted and were not ashamed. Anyway, it goes on and on, and you have to read it. And a lot of it, obviously, unless you study the Meforshim with it, the commentators, is very cryptic. But one of the things that we know is that Esther is compared to the morning star because the, the story of Purim, Megillah's Esther, was the last miracle, so to speak, that happened to the Jewish people during the time of prophecy. The end of the story of the Megillah is the end of prophecy, the end of the Jewish people having prophets. And we go into a much more uh, Hester period of history where God is more hidden, except for the Hanukkah miracle, which happens, you know, during the time of the second temple. We're, we're, we are it is written that this is a time period which becomes much more hidden, where God is not performing miracles. Of course, we know that the first temple was a place where miracles were happening all the time. And the second temple was much, there were not open miracles in the second temple. So this also signifies the fact that spiritually speaking, we were in a different zone. We no longer had prophets and there's very much to that, but that's not just something that I am talking about today. But the idea of Esther being compared to the last star of night is this idea of, of, of us going into this new um, season. So let's see. Okay, so let's go a little further because we have a little more time and we might as well keep learning Torah on this fast date. Uh, as an accompaniment for those of you who are fasting. So back to our um, topic on taiva, which is something we've been talking about, right? Taiva meaning impulse control. 
we're going to talk about Taiva in terms of the Megillah. Okay. What can we learn about certain character traits, good and bad, that the Megillah can teach us? So we're going to the idea of what's our attitude towards pleasure. As we know, the Megillah began with a party that was, ex was excessive indulgence in terms of the pleasures of eating and drinking. It was a 180-day party. Esther Hamalka, as we said, puts the people through a three-day fast. And basically, this is a tikkun for what they, how they indulged in the party. Now they have this fast to kind of cleanse them. So the Rambam, in uh, his book, Hilchos Deos, talks about the Shvil Hazahal, something that we've spoken about before, that there's something called the middle path. And when it comes to any character trait, a person shouldn't be too far this way or too far that way, but they should try to get themselves to the middle path. Okay? So when you have an extreme mida, he actually calls it a holy, a sickness. The idea is you have to go to the opposite extreme in order to come back to the middle. So let's say somebody is extremely stingy. They have a lot of trouble giving out their money. So the Rambam would say for 30 days, you should walk around giving out money everywhere you go, everywhere you see somebody. And hopefully by the time you're finished after 30 days, you'll come back to the middle. Now, practically speaking, we don't really do this today. We don't use it that much because extreme behavior in general doesn't seem healthy. But in the past, in past days, people did it a lot more. They'd even do things like really extreme, like roll in snow to fight their indulgence for pleasure, deny themselves, okay? So in the Megillah, Esther diagnoses the Jewish people of being too indulgent in materialistic pleasures and institute, institutes a three-day fast. This is a temporary thing, but it's there to create a balance. Okay, so um, interestingly that when COVID started two years ago, the word Corona, which everybody was talking about, means crown in Hebrew. Okay, the word Corona means crown. In the 50th year, the Jubilee year, the chauffeur was blown and all the servants went free. So all of these people who were servants, what did they do when they suddenly went free? Where did they go? So Chazal, our rabbis teach us that after the chauffeur blew, what the servants would do would they, is that they would tempor temporarily for a week, sit with the crown on their heads, eat and drink, and then go back to civilian life. So every servant was transitioning from being a slave in this 50th year when all the servants went free and they couldn't immediately go back to civilian life. So they had this process whereby they sat with crowns on their head and ate and drank. So the question is why? And the answer is, is that the Torah was teaching and is teaching us through this, um, through this depiction of what these slaves did, is that you have to balance yourself out. You're not ready for civilian life. So temporarily, you should behave like a king. You should go to the opposite extreme to balance yourself. So Corona straightened a lot of people out in one swoop. You know, Hashem can do that. He can straighten people out in one swoop. And a lot of people, because of Corona, realized that their lives were very extreme. For example people who were workaholics, who spent absolutely no time with their family, right? They were now forced, if you like, by Hashem to go to the opposite extreme. There was too much family time. There was too much with the kids, right? They were all home from school all the time, you know? 
And it was like Hashem was straightening people out, bringing people to, from one extreme to another extreme. And so many people were able to understand, wow, I really enjoyed being with my kids. I really missed being with my kids. This is very important. I need to prioritize. I need to, you know, look again at what I think is more important and what is less important. You know, Rabbi Noah Weinberg used to talk about workaholics. And he would say, you know, if I went to a workaholic and said, listen, how much do you make a year? I'll give you that amount of money. No, sorry, if, if um, I'll give you that amount of money if you sell me one of your children, right? I want one of your children. And the person would say, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give you my child. And he'd say, wow, you know, your child is worth all that money, but you don't spend any time with them. So I figured, you know, you take the money and give me your child. But he was just making a point which is the point that Hashem basically made. So she said, what about shopaholics, right? People who are shopaholics were prevented from doing so during the year of COVID, the years of COVID, right? And especially around Yanta, Pesach, right? Where everybody has to go out and get matching dresses for all their kids and matching bows and matching shoes and matching this and matching that. And a couple of years ago, nobody could do that. And so again, Hashem pushed everybody to an opposite extreme in order to make people realize that this is a little bit out of control. And look at that. You had a beautiful Pesach and everybody looked beautiful and they weren't wearing the latest whatever it was. They had to put on something from last year, from whatever. And so in this area too, she says, and then she says, what about foodies? People who are foodies. A lot of people had a lot of the basic ingredients missing from their Pesach a couple of years ago, and maybe even last year, right? There were, but really that first Pesach, remember, COVID started Purim time, right? A lot of people were fetching and complaining about, we can't get this and we can't get that. And how am I going to make my 10, you know, my layer, my, my nine uh, layered layer cake that I always make for Pesach because I can't get that, you know, that, um, that lemon extract or whatever that I use every year. It's nowhere to be found. So again, Hashem was saying, relax. You're a little bit extreme on the food, you know, spectrum. I know you're a foodie, but I'm going to show you, you can survive. You can survive with potatoes and meat like they did in the olden days, you know, and a few vegetables, whatever. So maybe Hashem's putting us all or put us all through some kind of opposite extreme for us to find the balance. Another example she gives is, is people who over control their children's free time. And so the kids never have any downtime. And during COVID, kids were home endlessly without structure. And parents realized, hey, maybe it's not so scary for my kids to be unstructured for a few hours. Maybe it's actually okay. And I'm enjoying it. And it's fun. And they don't have to go to a million lessons after school and always be scheduled. Right? Slowing down, she said, help people to recognize the importance of elderly people, people who you didn't have time for, or maybe you didn't appreciate. The coronavirus gave people the opportunity to do that. And the final balance, she said, is the idea of feasting on Purim, Mishloach Manos, that we're going to give each other, Matanos Le'Avyoni giving to the poor. This is the balance of using the material world in the proper way. Think about Esther, who was like a base Yaakov girl, right? Valedictorian of base Yaakov. So tsanua. So modest. She has to put herself out there. She has to take herself to the king right? And all that that involves in order to save the Jews. She has to marry this king. She has to live her life in the palace 
Talk about an extreme change of lifestyle. But she does it to save the Jews. So the elder of Kelm asks the questions, what is this balance? He points out that we're not anti-pleasure. If anything, the Jewish people are described as saturated with pleasure. But our pleasure is a pleasure that we should find in Hashem. Right? We know that we say about Olam Haba that the tzaddikim are enjoying. What are they enjoying? The Shekhinah of Hashem. The divine presence. That's what they're enjoying. You know, they say that in the next world, it's going to be like a huge baseball stadium, if you like, or whatever sport it is that you like. And based on your performance down here, everybody gets a seat. And what's on stage or what is everybody watching? The Shekhinah, God's presence, right? In a way that we can't even imagine experiencing it while in a physical body. And of course, the people in the closest seats are experiencing the Shekhinah in the most intense and incredible and pleasurable way. And we might be sitting, you know, a few rows back, or we might be sitting, you know, so far back that we need our binoculars, right? Or God forbid, you might be sitting in a seat where you've got some big head in front of you. You know, you ever go to a show, right? And there's somebody who's extremely tall and has a very big head and they're sitting right in front of you when you came to watch, you know, Beauty and the Beast down at the Royal Alex. And it's agonizing. You can't believe you paid for this ticket. But they say that, you know, some of us will be stuck in, a, in Olam Haba, in the Royal Alex with a big head in front of us and we'll be craning to want to see or experience or whatever that means, the Shekhinah, because that's the ultimate pleasure. As I like to say, you know, pleasures in this world, all the pleasures in this world that we can enjoy, the source of all those pleasures is Hashem. If you believe that Hashem created the world and you believe that Hashem created every single imaginable pleasure from the different colors of all the flowers, right, to the exhilaration of skiing down a mountain, or jumping out of a plane, if that's your thing. Hashem is the source of every pleasure, relationships between two people. Now, if you could attach yourself to the source of all pleasure, well, wouldn't that be the most explosive and greatest pleasure that's available to a human being while in this world? And that is the purpose, that is the balance of using the material to take us closer and finding pleasure in Hashem in this world. Interestingly, it says early in the morning when we say the brachas on learning Torah, it says, make the Torah pleasant for us. Make the learning of Torah pleasant for us. But what is the word ha'arev? Where does it come from? It has the same shoresh, the same root as the word irbuv. Irbuv means to mix, to mix. Because the idea is, is whatever you find pleasure in, you become enmeshed with it. You become part of it. It becomes part of you, right? That's what on the very negative extreme side addictions are, right? You get pleasure from it. You become enmeshed with it. And that's why we have to make sure our pleasures are healthy ones and not negative ones, because you become one with it, right? If your pleasure is to fetch, then that's what you're going to become enmeshed with. If your pleasure is to try to always look for the positive, that's what you'll become enmeshed with. If your pleasure is learning Torah and the wisdom of the Torah, then you and the Torah are becoming one. That's why that word, Baha'arevna, is used in the morning brachas when we're talking about the mitzvah of learning Torah. Pleasure is like glue. It connects me to whatever I find pleasure in. Pleasure is a means to connect me to something. And that's why sometimes people use pleasure in a repulsive way. So whatever I'm having pleasure from, I want to connect to more. 
So taiva, which we call taiva, right? Taiva, desire, desires. We should think of them as glue. So if our pleasure of food and our pleasure of shopping and our pleasures even of intimacy are all connected to the Torah, then again, we're going to be enmeshing ourselves with the Shekhinah, with Hashem, and how he wants us to use all of the physical pleasures, right? All of the yamin tovim, every Shabbos, we're connecting to the Torah through the physical pleasures of eating and drinking and getting dressed and all of the material things that go into making it a beautiful day. The Gemara in Beitza, Tessayan, talks about Shammai, Hillel and Shammai, the famous Hillel and Shammai. Shammai says, if you find a food in the middle of the week, save it for Shabbos, right? Shammai would find, you know, uh, a fish in the middle of the week. Well, maybe a fish is going to go bad, but especially in those days, they didn't have refrigeration. I don't know what they did. They salted everything. But let's say, you know, or in our day, let's say you found some incredible delectable fruit that you'd never seen before. So the idea that Shammai says is don't eat it today. Don't eat it on Tuesday. Don't eat it on Wednesday. Save it for Shabbos because then you are gluing it. You're gluing this physical pleasure. You're enmeshing it with the holiness of Shabbos. If we eat it on Tuesday, there's nothing wrong with it. But if I save it for Shabbos, it connects me to Shabbos. It glues me to Shabbos. If I save that nice clothing, that decor for Shabbos, right? It connects me to that event, to that occasion. So taiva is glue. Use it as a use pleasure as a means to connection. The Megillah's message was that it opens with them enjoying the party, but the suda that they were eating during that feast wasn't connecting them to anything except for frivolous, pleasurable nothing. Now these were people who were doing mitzvot and being from. And, you know, I know last week I ended my class saying that Amalek loves people who are wishy-washy in their Judaism. And when I say wishy-washy, and I, I hope I wasn't too strong at the end of that class, it doesn't matter what you call yourself. There's wishy-washy in every sector of Judaism, right? Whether it's Orthodox Judaism and people who apparently look like they're walking the walk and talking the talk. But that same word kor or korcha, which we last week translated with Amalek as Amalek cooling people off, right? And said he jumped into the scalding hot bathtub and he cooled people off. And that's why, you know, they weren't afraid of the Jews anymore. This cooling off, is the word kor is also the word carry, which means being casual. And God says in the Torah, if you act casually with me, all act casually with you. In other words, if you go through the motions, but it's not real and you're not invested and your physical pleasures are not connected, not being used as glue to connect you to me, then I'll also be casual with you. You know, your life will seem haphazard to you. You might not feel like you can collect, connect the dots as they did in the Megillah. Because if you're casual with me, I'll be casual with you. So the idea here is that the Jews of the Megillah, they were doing the mitzvah. They were being from, but their pleasures were not in a Jewish context. They were separate from their life. You know, it's like when I'm home, I do Jewish things. But when I'm out there, there's a lot of pleasures out there. You know, there was a rabbi left. He's still alive, thank God. He should be blessed. But he used to say, you know, today we have so many pleasures that are kosher pleasures. And, you know, but we have to be so careful because what he called, he called it glat kosher goyishkeit. That 
these pleasures that are so available to us are supposed to bring us closer to Hashem, are supposed to be converted into connecting to Hashem, are supposed to be made spiritual and elevated to a spiritual place. But when they become a means to an end or a way of imitating the Goyim, oh yeah, the Goyim go to this uh, remote island and do all kinds of things there. I can also go there because there's a Chabad there now, right? And as long as I spend Shabbos with Chabad, who cares what I'm doing the rest of the week? <laughs> Whatever. So we have to be careful that these wonderful pleasures and Baruch Hashem, we live in an incredible time where we can almost imitate and get, you know, it says anyway in the Torah that for every forbidden pleasure, there's a permitted one, right? There's a fish that tastes like chazir. If you could find it and eat it, you'll get that pleasure of eating chazir, right? But the question is, what's the intent? Why? And we know that when we go to the next world, God even asks us, did you enjoy all the pleasures of this world? But the pleasures are supposed to be the word ta'ava, again, just to end, is the idea of it's supposed to glue us. We become enmeshed with whatever it is that that pleasure is connected to. So what we want to do is connect our pleasures to Hashem, to the spiritual, right? To a yantiv, to a Shabbos. I want that dress, let me save it for Shabbos. I want that food, let's eat it on yantiv. And then it becomes enmeshed with a more spiritual thing. Just one more example of that, you know. Um, so, so the idea is, is that when we sit around, the, the fact that we sat around the feast of Ahasuerus, this is rectified by us sitting around the table of Purim and connecting to others through Torah and to Hashem through the materialism of, of Purim. Okay, so Dina Schoomaker gives an example that, you know, her kids want pizza on Motzi Shabbos, but she says to them, listen, if we're already having pizza, let's make it into Malava Malka, because then this pizza will glue the family together. We can use this experience of eating pizza as a glue, right, because now we're elevating it to being Malava Malka. Okay, there's more on this and we'll continue with this. But, um, and I know the time is up. So I want to wish everybody a Chag Sameach, a Purim Sameach, a Freilich and Purim. God willing, it should be a Purim where we see Yeshuos. And everybody should realize that Purim is an incredible day to daven. In between everything else that you have to do, make time for yourself. You know, whenever and whatever, you could start by saying Psalm 22 right? And then open up your heart and pray for everything. Because Purim, we're told, right? Yom Kippur, Yom Kippurim is a day like Purim. We all think about Yom Kippur being the holiest day of the year. But the rabbis tell us Yom Kippur is just a day like Purim. Purim is higher than Yom Kippur. And going back to this idea, because it's easy to get close to Hashem, when you abstain from everything, when you're an ascetic, when you say, I'm not going to indulge in the physical and material world, much harder and much more precious to Hashem is not when we're acting like angels all day, like on Yom Kippur, but when we're being real, physical, material human beings, but we're using our love for pleasure, our ta'ava, in order to connect to Hashem. And that is higher and more spiritual and more profound than doing it without material, the material. And so I wish all of us that all of the material acts that we're busy with on Purim, eating and drinking to excess, right? Delivering gifts to our friends, giving to the poor without end on this day, right? They should all be done in the spirit of connecting more and more intensely to Hashem, to the Shekhinah, and of course, developing ourselves in the process of knowing how to use the material world to elevate ourselves and the world around us. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day. Have an easy Thank fast. And God willing, 
We'll continue Thank next you. week. Thank you. Have a wonderful time. Thanks. Hi, Madeline. Thank you for coming. <laughs> that was really so nice, nice to see your face. So good to hear you again. <laughs> anyway, you could also take a look at the McGill, everybody. There's so much in it to read before you mm. actually hear it because there's so much in it. And it's so such an exciting story. And the more you understand it, the more you realize how Hashem was there all the time and still is. Okay. Take care. Love you. Let me say hi to Marlene. Hi, Marlene. I always want to connect with you. (laughs) One day, one day. Happy Purim. Take care. Bye. Bye, everybody.